Hello, and welcome back to The Kids Table, a podcast where we discuss all things child development with the research and policy bent. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Haley. We are a researcher and a policy analyst translating the science of child development for the public and integrating it with policy, practice, and trends in tech and business. Each month, we start by covering the latest in research, policy, media, and then we bump to a guest portion so that you can hear straight from an expert about the incredible work that they're doing in developmental science. We are headed back into the holiday season of 2023, and it's the time of year that gets us really thinking about holidays, family, and of course, social connection. Apropos, given the topic that we plan to cover in this episode. Exactly, Haley. And so we've covered the psychological and both physiological effects of social connection in past episodes. We had talked with Dr. Rose Perry in last year's November episode. So what we've learned already about loneliness and social isolation is that can have really measurable impacts on not just our mood and our psyche, but on the actual physiological structures of the brain. Yeah, absolutely. And researchers and advocates aren't the only ones who are aware of this issue. Government agencies like the Health Health and Human Services have published research on the epidemic of loneliness and isolation in the U.S. And in their most recent report, HHS officials break down social connection into three crucial components related to the extent to which an individual is socially connected. Uh, The first has to do with structure, referring to the number and variety of different relationships, the frequency with which we interact with those partners. Two, it has to do with the function, meaning the degree to which our relationships serve our different needs. And the third is quality, referring to the positive and negative aspects of relationships and interactions. So think about things like how large your friend circle is, whether those friends give you mentorship or emotional support or are there for you in a moment of crisis, and how satisfied you are with those friendships. And each of those components on a scale make up a general assessment of your social connectedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love to think of social connection as a, a metric of well-being. And, yeah. you know, I love having all those different components as being really important parts of it, too, to help me understand it even better. And Absolutely. most critically, health and human services found that there are national trends in our experiences of social connection. So from 2003 to 2020, Americans spent significantly more time alone and less time on in-person social engagements. Rates of social isolation increased by 24 hours per month on average, a whole additional day isolated, and household family social engagement decreased on average about five hours a month, while social engagement with other people outside of the home also decreased by about 10 hours per month, and social engagement with friends decreased on average about 20 hours per month. So across all these different metrics of social connection, we see this decline. Yeah. Now, there are lots of different things that can shape these changes, including the experience of chronic disease, mental and physical health, the life stage that you're in, changes in household size and cultural dynamics over the last 20 years. So there are a lot of both individual and broader community level factors that are shaping how socially connected we all are. But it's our social infrastructure in particular that I'm personally interested in. Mm -hmm. And that infrastructure, for instance, including the availability of public spaces like libraries and parks and public programs like volunteer and member organizations, as well as how our communities are physically structured, how how that urban space is actually built, like whether they have public transportation and adequate affordable housing that really do shape those measurable impacts on our feeling of social cohesion. Like if you're living in a fairly isolated space, Mm -hmm. you have to exert that much more effort in order to maintain, build and maintain that kind of social circle. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. 
And that social infrastructure is largely shaped by policies, of course. So broader social policies, the technological environment we live in, and also our cultural norms. So that's why lawmakers, advocates, even the Surgeon General also weigh in on this issue. The Surgeon General, for instance, released a brief in May of this year calling on the need to strengthen six pillars of social connection related to our social infrastructure, public policies, mobilizing the health sector, reforming our digital environments, expanding public knowledge and research on social cohesion, and also cultivating a culture of connection. Ultimately, social isolation can result in physical health problems like heart disease, stroke, diabetes, all those rates increase with social isolation, and that also impacts an individual's morbidity, potentially leading to premature mortality. So social connection not only has measurable impacts on the brain and the physical structures of the brain, but it has cascading effects on our overall physical health. Yeah, it's really a a whole body, whole spirit kind of um, metric that's really important. Yeah. So we're obviously here at the kids table. Mm -hmm. If we're still working out how to get adults up to speed on the importance of social connection, like the Surgeon General and HHS are releasing these reports as a sort of like community governmental led uh, initiative to support social connection. What does that mean for kids? Mm -hmm. And you're so right. It wouldn't be the kids table if we weren't asking that question. What does this mean for the kids? (laughs) Um, So if we start earlier in life, really building a strong foundation for social inclusion that results in better health habits like physical activity, nutrition, high quality sleep, connections to social supports that reinforce those good habits, does that mean we can also shape generational social connection? And how do we conduct research about social exclusion and inclusion, given what a interdisciplinary topic this is and how complicated and multifaceted the experience of social inclusion is? Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Understanding what happens when we feel a lack of social connection is obviously important, but we are developmentalists here. We're most curious about what kids think of the issue and in true developmental fashion, how early kids start to reason about the impact of social isolation and social exclusion. So this week we have a real treat because we are excited to introduce you to our guest who is here to tell us all about her research on children's reasoning about social inclusion and exclusion. And as an educator herself, she's going to talk a little bit about her philosophy of social belonging and how it shapes her approach to the classroom. So should we bring her in, Haley? Let's do it. I am very happy to introduce a dear friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Amanda Woodward. Amanda received her bachelor's in biology and psychology from Loyola University and her PhD in psychology from the University of Maryland College Park, which is where we met. After completing her PhD, she spent some time as part of the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Riverside, before becoming an assistant teaching professor at the Department of Psychology at the University of Minnesota. Amanda has a longstanding interest in how different methods can be applied to understanding social relationships and social dynamics, including the expectations that we set of our friends and peers, and what different kinds of cues we use to predict other people's behavior. Amanda is also a whiz at R, I can tell you that from personal experience, and she's (laughs) passionate about engaging students in statistics courses and around open science practices. And in her free time, she and her husband love to go for runs, work on reno projects in their newly purchased home, which is very exciting, and spend time with their adorable Halamute, which is a husky Malamute mix named Enzo. Welcome, Amanda. We're really, really glad to have you. 
happy to be here. So Amanda, can you start us off by telling us just what do you study and what are some of the kind of major things that you're interested in? Sure. So the main area I study is early social cognition. I'm primarily interested in how young children think about the social relationships around them, how they observe different interactions, and then how they use that information to form evaluations of others and form judgments of actions. So I know that last sentence is fairly broad, but usually the area that I apply this to is social exclusion. So we know social exclusion does not feel good. Even as adults, we aren't exactly thrilled when we get left out of things and it can be mm -hmm. pretty hurtful. Some of the main questions I'm interested in are when do kids start to have negative responses to social exclusion? What do those look like and how long do they last? If someone leaves them out, do they care? Do they hold it against the person? Basically, how do they use that information? And then beyond social exclusion, I'm also interested in sort of the opposite of that. So friendship behaviors, the expectations we form for friends, specifically revolving around pro-social behavior. So if a friend needs help, are you obligated to help? Should you get in trouble if you don't? What sorts of factors influences the judgments we make in those scenarios? This reminds me of actually the first kind of psychology study I ever participated in. I had to play this little online virtual game and it was a game where you like pass a ball to someone, you like click to pass a ball. And maybe this is a classic kind of study that you're aware of and can tell us about. But I remember it was like, uh, you can change like how, what percentage of the time you get past the ball and you see like what percentage, like, you know, so you're supposed to get it about 30% of the time if there's three of you. And we were trying to figure out like, at what point do people feel socially excluded and how do they respond to it? Which is like a funny, like very like um, computer gamey way to study social exclusion. But I'm curious if, you know, how you study it, and what kind of methods that you use. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that game. So mm -hmm. it's called Cyberball and yes. I use a similar method with kids. So it's always surprising to me when you play that computer game, because if you haven't seen it, they're basically little blobs that throw a ball back and mm -hmm. forth and it just doesn't feel like it should elicit any type of feeling. Right. It's and like yet so I abstract. still feel bad. <laughs> right. I remember so that it's super too. abstract. Yeah. So when we use it with kids, we do things a little bit differently. So I have used the actual computer version with the little blobs throwing the ball back and forth. The other thing we've done is we've brought that into a lab setting. So we've had puppets throw the ball back and forth. And when the child's included, they get it a third of the time, like you mentioned. Or when they're excluded, the puppets just throw it back and forth to themselves. And we've also used it in video studies to see how kids think about it from a third person perspective. So if they're watching someone else play this game, what's going through their head? How are they thinking about that scenario? That's awesome. And I love that you use puppets and you use all different kind of different mediums to understand how this affects kids. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different methods and there's good and bad with both. So what I've tried to do in these studies with my collaborators is have the computer version, have the puppets, have a story. Let's see if the mm -hmm. answers match up across these or if there are differences. And then if there are differences, is it something about the method or is there some other question that we can ask? And are you typically finding differences that you attribute to the method, like between sort of a 2D medium and a 3D medium where kids are are engaging with puppets or even like watching puppets as opposed to these more like minimal group blobs passing a ball? Are you are you seeing kids respond to those cues differently? Yeah, so right now I haven't 
directly compared them when we look at age groups across the studies in terms of how they're responding to social exclusion. Whether it's blobs or puppets, it seems to be happening around the same age, but the difference that I'm most interested in, and again, this is a qualitative difference, we haven't directly compared it yet, is kids' responses when they're being excluded versus when they're mm. watching videos of someone be excluded. Because we're seeing when they're watching people be excluded, it seems to be a little bit earlier based on the data that mm. we currently have. That's so interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of kind of like if you're the person being excluded, if you're kind of more in a victim space versus if you're in like a bystander space. Yeah, so whether you're in a bystander space or a victim space, whether you're having to engage in some form of coping mechanism because mm -hmm. exclusion feels bad, or whether there are just some cognitive factors like being in the, the things you have to pay attention to are different mm -hmm. in those two scenarios, and maybe one's more cognitively demanding than the other. What would you say are some of the primary influences on your work? Like, are there specific researchers or theoretical frameworks that you see as particularly important in shaping your approach to these questions? In terms of things that influence my work, there's two perspectives that I think really inform it. And there's the developmental side and there's the social exclusion side from adult social psychology work. From the developmental side, there are researchers like Mike Tomasello, who studies cooperation and formation of groups and sort of the evolutionary theory behind the ways cooperation can help humans succeed in groups. Now, when people are working together in groups, there's people who do the work and then there are freeloaders who don't do the work. One way to deal with freeloaders is to ostracize them from the group or to exclude them. And not being involved in a group can be detrimental to survival from an evolutionary perspective, but even now in modern times can lead you to have less resources, less people to work with, give you a bad reputation and things like that. So I think that's how I became interested in exclusion generally was talking to my advisor about these different options and really seeing the side that didn't seem as studied in younger children at the time that we were talking about it. And of course, I've learned since then that there are other folks who do this research, like Melanie Killen at University of Maryland and many others. Once I started digging into social exclusion, Kip Williams was someone whose work came up a lot in thinking about exclusion. So he has the theory, the temporal uh, thread of ostracism, which basically states we have different stages of our reactions to ostracism. There's sort of an mm. initial gut reaction, and then we have a reactive reaction time and a reflexive time where we are not having our gut reaction, but we're thinking about what happened. How can we modify behaviors? What can we do differently the next time? And some of the things that were really interesting to me were the ways that people took that theory and continued on with it. So for instance, um, there's some work about the ways people respond to exclusion. And it seems like there can be two different theories or ways people respond. So if we think about what happens when we're left out, I can either say, you know what, you left me out. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to burn this bridge and I'm going to kind of go on my own. Sort of this self-isolating, I'm working by myself. Maybe I'm acting a little bit aggressively toward you. And then on the flip side, we have, I feel bad. So I'm going to make a connection with somebody, anybody. I don't care who it is, but I'm going to start doing 
things in a pro-social manner. I'm going to imitate people. I'm going to nod a lot as they're talking and give them cues that I'm a good person to interact with to try to reestablish some sense of belonging. So when I started asking questions about how kids thought about exclusion, I wanted to combine those two areas and look at what was happening when kids were left out of groups, how they were thinking about it, and mm -hmm. also whether any of these adult social psychology theories might be in place at that time. That's so fascinating. And Haley, this reminds me of when we talked to Rose, because we had an interview that we did that was so fascinating, where we talked all about loneliness and kind of the epidemic of loneliness. And it really, you know, made me think that for really young kids and even, you know, babies, um, you know, Rose was telling us a lot of the tools that they use to study loneliness are uh, self-report. So, you know, how often did you feel like you wanted to connect with someone or weren't able to? But for really little babies, you can't ask them, like, do you feel lonely? And I think for young kids, like, you know, they might not yet have that vocabulary around that. So I think that's so fascinating to think about, like, the epidemic of loneliness and then social exclusion and how those are really manifested in childhood. Definitely. Yeah. And one of the threads that I think really stuck with me from our chat with Rose was that uh, loneliness and prolonged experiences of loneliness actually induce structural changes in the brain. And so it's very interesting that not only are you seeing um, the sort of overlay of different kinds of behavioral reactions to social exclusion, but potentially the implications that that has for longer term behavior or the predictions that we make about other people's behavior, that there may be these sorts of enduring or residual effects of the experience of exclusion or loneliness that shape our later social interactions. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not surprised to hear that there are findings with brain changes based on loneliness. In social exclusion and ostracism literature, we see work looking at cognitive changes. So your ability to recall things, working memory changes, social changes, so who you're interacting with and how often and whether you're seeking out social connection and physiological changes, like changes in your cortisol. So it wouldn't surprise mm -hmm. me if those two things are related because at the end of the day, whether it's exclusion or loneliness, part of what's happening is you're not satisfying a need to connect to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in that episode too, we talked about how it's kind of like a similar signal to pain. Like people can actually feel physical pain when they feel lonely and or socially excluded. And I thought that was like really striking. In the vein of um, maybe a different kind of connection, like feeling inspired by the people around us. I think of the role of teaching as particularly important for this dialogue, right? Like you are forming connections with many different people at a particularly, I don't want to say vulnerable, but but um, impactful moment in their lives, both developmentally, you know, where they where they are uh, age-wise, but also just as a matter of the dynamic that you're fitting with them and maybe the kinds of decisions they're making about their own lives so that you you wield a lot of influence as an educator in that space. Um, and so I'm curious about some of the influences that have shaped you in the classroom and how you approach that relationship building with your students and the kinds of things that you want them to get out of your teaching. Yeah, so I think part of my research being on social exclusion certainly carries over into who I am as a teacher. And one of the things that's really important for me is that my students feel like they belong in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of sources on getting students to involve it, be involved in the classroom. One of my current favorites right now is a book with, by Vigie Sathy, which is all about inclusive teaching. And it's 
really centered around the idea that students have different identities. There, some students have been systematically underrepresented in the classroom and ignored by traditional teaching approaches. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the ways that I try to structure my class is to bring students into the room and to hear their voices as much as I can. Um, of course, that works to different amounts in different classes. I will tell you, my statistics students certainly are not always excited with the methods that I choose to use. But to be fair, they're usually fairly anxious to be in that class to yeah. be from the beginning. And of course, there's variability. But I think what the way that I structure those classes is to acknowledge the fact that we're all coming from different places. You don't have to be already an expert on statistics to be part of the conversation and it's perfectly fine for you to hate statistics and never take another class again but we're going to set up some goals that everybody needs to at least try to engage with and the goals are more things like can you interpret statistics if you see a statistic in the news do you know what it means or do you at least know what questions to ask to get a sense of what it means so Given that those are my goals, I try to structure the class in a way that every time we're talking about something, that's what I want them focusing on. Do you know what the statistic is? Do you know how to interpret it? If someone shows it to you, can you get a sense of what it means or what questions to ask? And then just trying to foster an environment where it's okay to be wrong while we're learning. I think so much of this, the anxiety around statistics comes from, oh no, there's math involved. Math is objective. There has to be one mm -hmm. answer. And I think you both know from working with statistics, there isn't always one perfect answer or it's not totally objective. There are some subjective choices that go into it. And I think just trying to create a space where they can look into that, where they can question things and hopefully where they can have a little fun with it and see that it's not always scary and it's an important tool for them to learn. So I definitely want to enroll in your stats class because that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that connection that you made between, you know, you study exclusion, and I'm thinking about um, Haley, our episode with Angelica, where we talked about women in STEM and kind of the stereotype threat around engaging with, you know, things like statistics. And so um, that's, yeah, just like that really helped me see a clear connection between like what you do and how you teach. And basically, I feel like it's like, um, you know, talking out loud of a teaching philosophy statement. And I'm like, oh, that's how to do it well. <laughs> <laughs> There definitely is a lot of that. And I also just have to make a plug for your ability to pull in TV references, unlike anyone I have ever met before. It is a it's an art form that you have curated uh, to have references to different TV shows your students are watching in in your slides. Thank you. I appreciate that. I will say this semester we've moved away from some TV examples. Don't worry, there's still plenty of them been doing a lot of Taylor Swift references with the different <laughs> albums coming out and the Eras tour. Um, just, you know, whatever they're interested in that can make it a little more fun. Because if you can apply a T-test to Taylor Swift's revenue before and after <laughs> the Eras tour, then you can apply a T-test to pretty much anything. <laughs> That's awesome. And I'm curious too, because I know, Amanda, you also study children's moral conception and right and wrong. And I know you also study a little bit of executive functioning. Can you talk a little bit more about how that work fits into your um, portfolio as well? Sure. So the main research questions that I focus on with social exclusion are when do kids recognize exclusion as a negative thing? How do they apply that information to their own choices of who to interact with? 
And then do they use that information to do that? Do they communicate that information with others in a way that might be useful? So when I started this project out or this, these line of studies out, I was talking to my advisor about it and he said, you know what, seems like a cool question. Let's start from the beginning. You know, let's just see, do three-year-old, three to six-year-olds recognize exclusion in this scenario because we're taking these abstract blobby characters and we're using puppets instead and, and let's just see what happens. And I originally had this idea that we would look at gradations of exclusion. So things mm -hmm. like if someone says, no, you can't play with us or you can't sit with us versus it just happening kind of non-verbally. Like if I just turn my back to you and don't mm -hmm. let you sit at the table and we, you know, we'd come up with all these different ideas and we just went, all right, let's, let's see what happens. And the first study we did, kids overall did not identify the excluder. And we thought, Interesting. yeah, that's what we thought too. So we started exploring <laughs> the data <laughs> to see what was going on. And this was the first study. We didn't really have a full memory check yet. So we did some exploratory analyses and it seemed like kids who understood exclusion we're evaluating these characters the way we thought, making recommendations the way we thought. So excluders were mean, includers were nice. Everyone should play with the inclusive person because of course. The other group of kids had the exact opposite reaction. So if they said that the excluder shared more, they thought the excluder was nice, the includer was mean, and that people should play with the excluder. So we did some other studies sort of looking at what was going on here and included an actual memory check. And I think there's sort of two ways of looking at that. One is, you know, there were some cognitive limitations for these kids. They were seeing highly similar characters who just differed in a shirt color. Maybe that wasn't enough for them to see these groups as different, or maybe it was just too much of a delay. It was sort of overloading memory. So what we did after that were sort of two different studies and one that followed the same line of evaluation sorts of questions, but using videos. So getting more into that observed exclusion. And then the other one was looking at something else, basically tying my interests together. So I was interested in pro-social behavior, was interested in moral psychology, and I started a collaboration with Dr. Aaron Baker, who's at the University of Albany. At the time, we were both graduate students at the Cognitive Development Society conference in line to get ice cream. And <laughs> I was telling her all about these findings that I couldn't make sense of. Where and all she was great alliances me, are formed. <laughs> yes, we yes. have ice cream. <laughs> ice cream is the best way to form a collaboration. <laughs> Um, but we were talking about it and I would, you know, was just explaining my findings and trying to make sense of it because I had to present it at a poster later on. And she was like, oh, actually, that's interesting. I study aggression and I'm interested in moral self-concepts. And as we kept talking about that, one of the things that came out of it was going back to what I told you was a, a driver of my research was in adults, we see that people can respond to exclusion in two ways. So that sort of burning bridges, aggressive approach, and a more pro-social, I want to connect with people approach. And as we were talking about it, she's like, well, there's this moral self 
concept puppet interview that I use that focuses on pro-social items and aggressive items. And I thought, okay, well, let's look into this and see if there's a way that we can combine it. So we ended up doing a between subject design to get rid of that memory issue that I was talking about with the prior study and just sort of wanted to look to see if kids were reporting differently. And the hope was eventually we'd find a way to turn that into not just moral self-concepts, but actually get at the behaviors. Um, it is shockingly hard to come up with a good way to to get kids to act aggressively when they're three. <laughs> so that's <laughs> probably a good thing. That's reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. When you think about ethics and all of those sorts of things. Um, and at the time, you know, again, it was an area that she was studying and it seems a good starter place. And we included the executive function measure for that because, again, we were worried in that in the original study about memory demands and working memory and trying to keep these characters in mind. So we thought, let's include a measure of executive function and see if there are any changes there. And what we found was that executive function was doing most of the predicting for the moral mm. self-concept interview. So I think one of the things I've taken away from that is it's important to look at executive function as when I'm asking kids to keep different tasks in mind. And also that well, one of the things that we're doing now in some research that I'm doing with undergraduates um, is looking at sort of the different inferences kids are making based on exclusion. So things like, are you expecting someone to be higher or lower status if they're excluding people? Do you think it's okay or not okay? Um, so some of it's related to the work that Melanie Killen's done and seeing if we get similar results, um, but also just kind of building on that to see sort of kids' responses after they've participated or interacted with these characters versus observed them. Interesting. I'm reminded weirdly enough of a study actually about the overlap between math and uh like literacy capacity in, in mm -hmm. the brain that it is largely performance in each of those areas is largely driven by shared cognitive structures that are also overlaid with um or are largely activated by tests of executive function. So it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if it should be surprising necessarily, but it's so interesting to see it in action that um, that executive function and the ability to sort of monitor multiple different facets of a scenario at the same time and just sort of hold those things in mind as you're making these different kinds of judgments is so, so critical. And that that's happening perhaps much earlier than people might think. And that it's also sort of feeding into not just the sort of like hard content learning that we tend to think of as important, you know, executive function as important for, but also the the more nebulous sort of social judgments that we're making of people and the different kinds of inferences that we make of other people's behavior. Um, so all that to say, the brain is so beautifully integrated. That is <laughs> such a cool study and such a cool finding. Um, yeah, and, and I have to say, um, I'm trying to sort of, like piece together these two different threads of research that you have been publishing lately um or more recently like one certainly i think is true to your roots in in social exclusion and in inclusive pro-social behaviors and the other really has to do with your students reasoning um i am no longer an educator but caitlin and i both have a history 
And so we're really interested in this paper uh, that you have about students learning of statistical concepts, either through our programming or through hand calculations. And I remember you telling me about this study and it's such a cool study, um, but I'm curious for two things. One, if you could tell us about that study uh, and what your some what some of your primary takeaways are. And two, if you could sort of help me understand like where these two interests are either evolving in parallel or if there's like a deep connection that that I'm missing that would be helpful for sort of understanding some of the shared themes between the two. Yeah, so I think in terms of connecting the two, they're obviously very different lines of research. <laughs> But for me, the, the way that study came about was partially trying to get students to engage in statistics. And because if it has not come across yet, I'm a firm believer that everybody should have to have at least a basic understanding mm -hmm. of statistics yeah, and that it doesn't have to be painful. <laughs> so part of how it came to be is I had just started my position at UC Riverside, which was my first postgraduate position. And I had been TAing in R for, for years at that point. I picked my TA position because I knew I was gonna have to learn statistics and I was gonna have to learn R and I just felt like I didn't have a good enough grasp. And I was always told if you could teach it, you must mm -hmm. understand it better because you have totally. to be able to explain it. Yeah. So when I started interviewing for positions, people were looking at my CV and saying, oh, you taught an R. Well, would you do that here? And I hadn't really given it much thought, but, you know, I was doing it already. So why not? And then I realized that not everyone taught in R and not everyone came from a department that was pretty supportive of people using R. And I think when people started to hear that I was teaching with it, they went, oh, well, why? Why would you do that? <laughs> <That's> silly. <laughs> Which is a fair question. I mean, intro stats is hard. Can you imagine mm -hmm. being a student in a class? Like any of my students on the first day where you find out, hey, not only is this a statistics class, but you're also programming. Yeah, in a language that you might not have used before. Yeah. Right. You've never heard of this language, mm -hmm. but let me stay with me through today. Mm -hmm. You're learning statistics and how to program. <laughs> and maybe that doesn't do the best job at bringing people into the conversation or making them feel included in the class mm -hmm. environment. Um. So I was talking to Dr. Annie Ditta, who is an assistant teaching professor at Riverside, and she was teaching with hand calculations. And we went, well, if we're doing this differently, maybe we should see if there's, if one of these methods is better than the other, if one's more helpful than the other. Because we know hand calculations lead to math anxiety for some students. They take a lot of time to do in a class. So I'm not sure if either of you has ever hand calculated in ANOVA or remember that experience. No, no but I'm glad I have not had to. <laughs> yeah, and it takes a long time. Um, and there might be other ways to use class time besides going through, you know, hand calculation with 10 participants in it. And of course we can make the data set smaller, but then students sort of lose a little bit of what actual data sets look like. So Annie and I 
met, we made very similar slides and made sure that we were covering the same content in both of our, our sections of the class. And then we wanted to compare to see how students did on the, the exam problems. And what we found was there was no difference in how students were performing. So one way of interpreting that is that there's truly no difference. Um, other ways are to think about things like other teaching methods. So Annie and I are both people who read a lot of scholarship and teaching and learning. We wanna teach as effectively as we can. We're doing a lot of active learning, engaging students in problems, getting them to question and reflect on what they're actually doing in the classroom. And we're both using fairly entertaining examples. So maybe those things matter more than the calculation method. Now, of course, that's one null result. We can't, I told you all the fun, cool interpretations, mm -hmm. not the other one, which is just maybe they're, we can't make a conclusion based on sort of similar findings. So I had another group of undergraduate students this year who have been working on another version of that study. So in my intro stats class, I finally gave in to the student evaluation comments saying that they wished that they did hand calculations and I gave them both hand calculations and R. We split well, the class. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I always get really spiteful when I get that review because like, <laughs> I have tried so hard to set yeah. this class up to make it so that you focus on interpretation. And so you don't get bogged down in the details of where the parentheses and the exponent goes. Because not that those things aren't important, but when we think about who the average student is in the class, they're not necessarily going to graduate school. They are not going to see the ANOVA formula again. Mm -hmm. They will, however, see newspaper articles that compare multiple groups and need to know how to interpret that. So what, yeah, so what we did um, this semester was we had students watch a video introducing the statistic before they came to class, half got hand calculations, half got R, and then we asked them questions at different levels of learning. So rather than just mm -hmm. comparing how they did on the exam, we looked at how well do you understand the definition? How well do you understand when to apply the statistic? How well can you calculate it? And then how well can you interpret it? Um, we got very similar results, except that our mm -hmm. students are calculating things more accurately than hand calculations, which is not super surprising to me because if you have to use a formula with parentheses and exponents and plug numbers in, there's just way more room for error versus with R, it's either going to run or it's not. And mm -hmm. usually with the examples we give in class, if it's running, you're getting the right answer. And then the other piece we did was uh, confidence judgment. And I think the most interesting part is we're finding that even though our students are doing better on the calculation, both groups are equally confident in the results that they're getting. So mm -hmm. it, not all that different from other work looking at confidence in calculation, but one that I find interesting that one sort of warrants the the confidence and, and one mm -hmm. maybe not so much. I love that you did like your own um, like control and experimental conditions for your class. It's so like research spills into teaching, teaching spills into research. Uh, that's so, it's such a clever way to test a pedagogy. Thanks. Yeah, I like asking why questions and have fortunately been in positions where I can ask those mm -hmm. both in research and in teaching. 
I wonder how these stuff, how these findings would replicate across different kinds of platforms. Like R strikes me as sort of unique, both as a coding language and just in terms of the relation between the coder and what must be a sort of baseline understanding of the methods that they're using. Uh, it's not a point and click kind of software. You're actually like writing out, um, you know, your indicators and what your outcome is going to be and sort of there's a and in not intrinsic, but there's a built-in understanding that must be there to be able to actually write these models and have R run them and not just scream at you in red text. Um, so I'm curious about, you know, whether the difference might be in a type of point and click software that maybe doesn't drill down as much into the methods in a similar way that the hand calculations also require you to. But I'm fascinated by this, um, both the similarities across confidence in their findings and also their ability to interpret them. I always sort of feel like maybe in, in the R courses that we, or in the stats courses we took in grad school, the focus was so much on interpretation. We would get like R output that had the quote unquote coffee spills on it. And you would have to sort of reverse engineer and reconstruct what that output must've looked like. And so there's, there's a lot of unpacking that you have to do, I feel like with R that requires that you sort of mull over and reflect and, and understand uh, those findings. So I'm fascinated by the parallels in students' ability to interpret across those two different um, approaches. Yeah, so I think right now, one, the interpretation data is the last thing that we're coding. So right now I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, it I misunderstood. Oh, I don't think I said. So we looked, we collected the data on definitions, context, calculation, and interpretation. Got it last semester. This semester, what students are doing is analyzing that data. So at this point, they've analyzed the definition, context, and calculation problems, and then the confidence in their calculation. What they still have to do in November is looking at the interpretation piece and the um, interpretation confidence. So right now, they're about halfway done, and I can tell you the two groups do not look different at this point. I don't know if that'll hold up. It looked it's one of those things where if you look at it, it it's possible they pull apart and the R group is better at interpretation. But that's me speculating about half the data set not being coded yet. It could go the other way and they could be equal, but at least hand calculations does not seem to be doing better. And to your point about using point and click software, there are studies that have looked into students' ability to calculate statistics using point and click versus hand calculations they do better with point and click than they do with hand calculations oh my goodness so interesting yeah I don't know if they've looked at the interpretation different I'm sure someone has looked at the interpretation difference I just don't know the finding off the top of my head out of curiosity did the students in the groups know that they're part of a like a, a curriculum kind of test yeah so we cool. did we got informed consent from the class before we did it oh, and nice. basically said, look, we were going to teach it this way anyway. We, we wanted you to get the experience with R. We wanted you to get the experience with hand calculations. Here's exactly what's going to happen this week. We'll talk about the hypotheses after you do the assignment, but it's exactly what you would do as part of the class. So do your best and know that there will be a reflective assignment where they get to tell us what they think. So we did ask students, you know, what was the best part of this? What was the worst part of this? 
And you're probably not surprised to find out that students do not like hand calculations, although they <laughs> yeah. like seeing it to help them. Mm. Like a lot of them thought both would be helpful for their learning. But when you ask them what they actually wanted to do, they didn't want to use hand calculations. They wanted mm-hmm. to use R. Yeah. And cited things like transferable skills. And, you know, some of them just think it's cool to learn how to program, which makes me happy because I was not mm-hmm. expecting that response. That's funny. It's like, I want to see someone else do the hand calculation while I sit and, and observe, not like have to do it myself. So, yeah, it's funny. I love how engaged your students are in their own learning too. Like, and particularly having participated in a sort of class internal study like this, really showing an investment in which methods are more or less helpful for them to actually grasp these concepts and understand them in context and sort of see how they might continue to use them in the future. Kind of like helping them develop their own executive functioning skills too, right? Like at the student level. Yeah, so we included a lot of metacognitive reflections with this. And the the point of it from the beginning was, you know, I told them the intention was I want to know what's going to help you learn and what we can do this semester to help you. Obviously, if we're collecting the data this semester, I can't apply everything that you suggest next week because I don't have that many hours in a day. But we can look at themes, we can discuss them, and moving forward in future semesters, we can make decisions based off of the feedback you all give and the data that we analyze. Amazing. I feel like there are a lot of different ways you could run with this question, but we do always like to ask it on our podcast. And that is, what would you say are some of the most common misconceptions that you've encountered in your work? And that can be in your profession as an educator, maybe the misconceptions students have about learning, or in your research around social inclusion or exclusion. As a teacher, the biggest misconception that I hear about are learning styles, and specifically the Mm -hmm. idea that students can only learn with a specific style. So I'm an auditory learner. I can't learn when you put pictures up on the board. And part of why that's the biggest one for me is because we can learn, assuming that we all have visual and hearing capabilities, using multiple styles. Some may be easier than others, but we are not particularly good at identifying which ones we're better at learning with. So when you Mm. ask people, are you visual, auditory, mixed methods, things like that, there's research to suggest that we will pick the wrong style for what's effective for us. And that's the one we talked about in class earlier this week. So that that's sticking out to me. I wonder and why gen- that's been such a sticky framework. Like that, it feels like that's been debunked many times over. We've had, um, you know, a couple of teachers and folks who work in a school setting on the podcast before, and I feel like this has come up where they're like, "Yeah, people yeah. are not up about learning styles," and and I'm not really sure why that is. And and for there to be even more research sort of exposing our weaknesses and identifying, you know, broader trends in our own learning is, is pretty striking to me. I'm, I'm curious as to why that's hung around. It reminds me of like the Howard Gardner, like multiple styles of intelligence thing. And I feel like there was kind of a mass misinterpretation of like 
his work of like, you have to pick one of them, right? Cause it's this nice, like visual chart that you can kind of pick and choose, but I don't think that's necessarily what he meant. And I think there's been so much research since to say that like there, it's not like a pick and choose kind of intelligence and learning style. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right, Caitlin, that there's something about being able to simplify that that has to be part of the equation. So research never gives us a straightforward answer, it seems like. It's often contextual, there's caveats and all sorts of things. And as scientists, we often hedge on them. But when it gets communicated to a broader audience, it's what can I do with it and what's the one sentence version. And I think it's easy for people to look at the research and say, oh, learning styles are helpful. One, two, three, four, pick the one that mm -hmm. that resonates with you and that's how you learn. Um, so I think that's certainly part of it. And I think on some end, for me at least, when I first learned about learning styles, it's kind of nice to be able to say, oh, it's not that I don't understand anatomy. It's that my teacher's using an auditory style of learning. <laughs> And I, I'm a visual person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I feel like there's a lot of simplification of psychology into like, what's your personality type? And there's 16 and like, there's so many little like heuristics like that. And it's, um, you know, hard to explain like the science behind it when people kind of just want a straight category and don't have time for the nuance. Definitely. Are you finding similar misconceptions in your research around social behaviors? I think the misconceptions I see in my research around children's social behavior tends to come when I talk to people who don't engage with developmental psychology very often or early social cognition. And I think it's something that maybe others who do research in this field will resonate with. The idea that children's social lives and their cognitive abilities are much richer than they may appear on the surface and just because we give simple questions when we're asking research or we're doing research does not mean that there isn't a whole lot of thinking that goes into those mm -hmm. from the child's perspective. And I think the thing that always makes me laugh is when I present my research outside of a developmental area or developmental atmosphere, I will almost always get a question like, can children do that? do they have yeah. friends like are children dumb like it's <laughs> so funny or even just do four-year-olds actually have expectations of friends like do they even know who their friends are and it's like yes just because friendship looks different at different ages doesn't mean that kids aren't thinking about these things and that they're not able to, to articulate them or use them in their decision-making processes I can't remember who I was talking to about this but we talked about like infantile amnesia and as people ask like they won't even remember like what's the point of taking your kid to disney world and it's like no that is such a myth like maybe they can't like actively recall something but it doesn't mean it's not shaping their experience it's not shaping how they grow and learn and so maybe there's a parallel here with like a little bit older kids and thinking about you know exclusion and moral development like just because they can't articulate something doesn't mean it's not there's not a rich um world beneath the tip of the iceberg there's an interesting sort of meta layer here too, given that every single one of us has at one point been a child. <laughs> yes. And so like, I would like to think that we think 
better of ourselves that you know we're able to reason at fairly early ages about fairly complex phenomena like we live in very information rich worlds and are social creatures by by design and so it feels not outside the realm of possibility that very young children like age three and four would be making fairly sophisticated judgments about people's social behaviors and and having, you know, their executive function um, support their ability to make those judgments. So yeah, it's striking to me. Like we have this sort of (laughs) self amnesia, self-selective amnesia, our own experiences from childhood that, you know, have shaped who we've become as adults. I know. I feel like a lot of developmental research, when it gets like to the news level, it's like breaking news. Children are smart. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, this was so fun, Amanda. Is there anything more that you wanted to talk to us about or that we haven't asked you about that um, you maybe wanted to talk about before we wrap up? I don't think so. This has been fun. Thank you all for the opportunity. Awesome. It's been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much, Amanda. This has been so eye-opening and I will definitely, now when I think about that little exclusion game and <laughs> understand why it's important, why that was like my first psych, you know, experiment I ever did. And um, I'll think about all the, the methods and the insights you shared with us. This has been really fabulous. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me.